Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Let me ask you a question. Who are you? If somebody asked you, who are you? We probably would answer, I would say, I'm Ryan. Well, I, I understand that, but beyond your name, who are you? And then how would we describe that? If someone asked you, who are you? How would we describe that? We would describe, we would answer that question based on the, the identity, the, the things that we value as our identity. I, I know your name, but who are you? And so I might answer and say something like, well, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a husband to Tiffany. I'm a dad to Ashlyn and Titus and TJ and Trey and Annalise. I'm an American. I'm a basketball coach. I'm a 49ers fan. Just wait, this is the year. Ring number six. In Purdy we trust, if he can get his elbow right. I'm a chips and salsa connoisseur. I'm a son. I'm a son-in-law. And you might describe yourself in similar ways based on how you view who you are. You might say, I'm a business owner, or I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I'm an alumnus of fill-in-the-blank college. In life, it is vital how we view our identity because our identity drives our behavior. Our identity drives our behavior, it drives our priorities. Our identity, the way that we view ourselves, out of that flow the things that we give our lives to. Let me illustrate. If part of my identity is that I'm a scuba diver, which I'm not, I enjoy snorkeling, I've scubaed once, I'm not a scuba diver, but for those that are, if that's part of your identity, guess what happens? What, what would you expect if somebody, part of their identity is that that's something they enjoy? Do we have any scuba divers out here? Let me just see. Anybody? We've got one here and one over there. Got a few. Guess what you'll probably see? Somewhere on their social media, somewhere every year or two or three or maybe multiple times, you're going to see them going on a trip, scuba diving. You're going, you might see the diving sticker on the back of their car. If you go into their garage, what might you find? You might find some scuba gear, a mask, fins. Why? Because part of their identity is, that's who they are, something they enjoy, and it drives behavior. If if I'm a fireman and there's an accident or an emergency that I see, even if I'm off duty, what am I going to do? I'm going to rush to see if I can help somebody, right? I'm going to see if there's somebody that needs help, and I've been trained. It's part of my training. It's part of my purpose in life. It's part of what I've given my life to. If my identity is partly a fireman, it's going to drive my behavior. My identity determines my behavior. If I tell you that I'm an artist, what will be part of my regular activities? Creating art. If I'm a fisherman, where are you going to find me on a day off? You're going to find me on a boat somewhere or on a shore somewhere or on a pier with a fishing pole in my hand. If I'm a pastor, where would you expect to find me on Sunday? In church, right? Why? Because my identity drives and determines my behavior. It's so important how we view ourselves. We often define ourselves by our hobbies, our careers, our experiences, our families of origin, our allegiances, and the list goes on. 
And our identity drives our decisions, our priorities, our spending, our schedules, and so much more. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to answer that question, who are you? Who are you really? We're stepping out of Genesis for a week, and we're going verse by verse to the book of Genesis. Um, We're about 20, 21 chapters into it. We're going to be this morning in the book of Ruth, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me if you will to Ruth in chapter number one. We're going to be looking um, throughout this chapter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. I always encourage you to look and see the text for yourself. Whenever I give verses in my preaching that are not a part of our main text, I often put those on the screen, but I almost never put the text we're actually in on the screen, and I do that on purpose. I think it's good for you, whether it's on a phone or a tablet uh, or or a hard copy Bible, for you to look in for yourself and to see the words of God. If you're like me, I like to underline, or maybe you highlight or make a note and to see those, and we're going to be looking through these four chapters at, at 15 or 20 different verses here this morning, and so I'd encourage you to follow along. If you're on a phone or a tablet, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. We're going to be in Ruth. Ruth is a beautiful four-chapter book. It's a wonderful love story of redemption. For those that like interesting and unnecessary Bible trivia facts, it is one of only two books of the Bible named after a woman, and only the only Old Testament book named after a non-Jew. And so you can use that as on the way home with your kids, ask them a Bible trivia question and sound very uh, very smart. What are the only two books of the Bible named after women? Esther and Ruth. And Ruth is the only one in the Old Testament named after a non-Jew. Many in our church right now, we're reading through a chronological Bible reading plan, going reading the Bible through in a year chronologically. And, and there's an accompanying podcast that you can listen to called The Bible Recap, and I think it was probably three weeks ago now um, that we read through Ruth together in that plan. And Ruth, it was four chapters, we read it all in one day. And as I read it, I had not planned to preach from Ruth, but I, there was one phrase that kind of, the whole story was beautiful, and I've, I've studied it before, of course, but one phrase kind of stood out, and I couldn't get away from it, and I began to ponder it and think about it, and then we, of course, had Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday, and then we had a guest speaker last week, and I kept deciding, am I going to jump back into Genesis, or am I going to, uh, that, that thought. And so, this past week, week and a half, I developed this thought, and we're going to get to that, that story here in a minute, but before we get to that, or that, that phrase, before we get to that text verse and pull out all of those applications for our lives today, I want to give you, so that we understand the context, I want to give you a crash course on the story of Ruth. Have you ever seen those books, you know, um, scuba diving for dummies or whatever it is? We're going to do a little real fast here the next 10 minutes or so, uh, 15 minutes, a Ruth for dummies, if you will. And I'm not saying that's what you are, but just using the cultural book. We're going to give you the background of this book. Jump with me, if you will. Ruth in chapter number one, verse number one. The Bible says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab, whenever you see it in the Bible, Moab, the country of Moab, the Moabite people, they are the descendants of one of the children from the the godless, incestuous relationship uh, between Lot and one of his daughters. Remember we studied that, I think it was Genesis, uh, was it 19, is that right, where we were a month or two ago, we saw that story there? Well, one of those sons that was born through that, that vile relationship there after they fled Sodom and Gomorrah uh, that was born, uh, that's where the Moabite people came from. And so that's who this is. So you have a famine in Bethlehem in Israel, and, and a man, a certain man went to go to the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. They really would not have fit their 
ethnically, they would not have fit there religiously, but that's where they went. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, so that's the man that went. His name of his wife, Naomi, the name of his sons, Malon and Chilion, and Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So the patriarch there dies, so now Naomi is here in this foreign land with her two sons, verse 4, and they took them wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years, and Malon and Chilion died, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the country of Moab, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So understand the story, where it starts, Ruth, there's a man, a Jewish man, Elimelech, that takes his wife Naomi and their two boys, takes them over to Moab because there's a famine, things are tight, economy is bad, decides to move to a place where there's a little better opportunity. By the way, it's a good reminder, where you live and the decisions you make and who you surround yourself with matter. His sons end up taking daughters of Moab, which historically in Scripture is not a real good thing um, to take a daughter of Moab. Um, And while they're there, they're there about a, a decade, Ruth never has any children, she's childless, and both of those boys die. So now the widow, widow Naomi, is also now lost two of her adult sons. And so now it's just Naomi, a widow, and her two daughter-in-laws, the daughters-in-law that are widows as well. And in this society, a widow is a really bad place to be. It's why the Bible tells the church in the New Testament to take care of widows and orphans. You, you very rarely are you going to be able to provide for yourself if you're a widow. You're basically going to be a social outcast, just kind of living on whatever handouts you can get from whoever's going to give you something. And so that's where they're at. They're, she's living in a foreign country that her husband is not there with her two daughters-in-law, and, and so she decides, I'm going to go back because I heard God, I heard the economy's better back in Israel now. I heard God bless the economy, so I'm moving back. And she tells her daughters-in-law, she says, you guys are free from me, go start a new life in your home country here, I'm going to go back. Notice verse number, and Orpah agrees and stays, but Ruth, who didn't have any children, didn't want to do that. Look at verse 15, skip down if you will. Try to give you this crash course. Verse 15, and she said, behold, thy sister-in-law, Naomi tells Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Go, go back the way you were raised. Go do whatever you're going to do in Moab. Start your life. Verse 16, and Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. So Ruth says, no, I'm not leaving you. You're my family. I'll go with you. I want, I want your God. I want your people. I want to go with you. That's Ruth, and that's where we have. And so the two of them move back to Bethlehem. Uh, Ruth knows no one there. She's never been. Naomi has been gone for over a decade. She has no job, no way to provide for themselves. But Naomi did have a wealthy relative. His name was Boaz. She, Naomi had a wealthy relative named Boaz. And in those days, you can read it in Deuteronomy, one of the, God's laws was for his people was that you allowed those that were less fortunate to glean off of your, the extras of your, your, and there's so many beautiful principles here, but if you've been blessed abundantly, let some others be blessed by your blessing. And, and so what would happen is um, they would go through, the farm workers would go through, and, and they would um, gather the crops, the vegetables, the fruit, whatever it might be, and then 
orphans, widows, um, maybe unmarried women, whatever it might be, those that wouldn't be able maybe to provide for themselves could come back through and glean of the fruits and vegetables that had fallen by the wayside, that had been left by those that had harvested. And Naomi has a wealthy relative named Boaz who has a field, and, and, and so Ruth says to her mother-in-law Naomi, she says, and I'm giving you the shorter version so we don't read all four chapters, she says, let me go to Boaz's field to scrounge up some food for us to eat. So let me go, I'm going to go over there with all of those, kind of after all the work's done, I'm going to find whatever leftover fruits and vegetables I can find. Now look, if you will, chapter 2, skip to chapter 2, verse number 2. And Ruth the Moabitess, I want you to notice her identity there, Ruth the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, let me now go into the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, go, my daughter, skip down to verse number five. Then said Boaz unto his servants that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Who's this lady? Whose who's maid is this? Who's this girl that's in our fields that I've never seen before gathering corn? Who is this? And so she goes, and, and Boaz sees it, skip, uh, if you will, and I want you to see even in, in verse number six, he says, um, uh, this, in verse six, and the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, it is, look at the identity, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. By the way, that's not a real flattering description there. Basically, that's the broke, non-Jew widow from that wicked country who tags along with Naomi. That's what the servant says. That's the Moabitish damsel that's hanging out with Naomi. Boaz goes to talk to her, and he basically says, don't worry about finding food anywhere else. Keep coming to my field. I've told my servants to make sure you're taken care of. You're going to have food. So Ruth comes home and says, great news. Boaz said, I can keep coming. We found groceries. I'm going to go get them every day, and we'll be able to get those. And Naomi brings up the idea and says, maybe my relative, and Boaz was on Elimelech's side, maybe the relative of my dead husband, Boaz, maybe... He will show you undeserved favor and love. Maybe he'll take you to be his wife. Maybe he'll, he'll let you come into his family, and maybe he'll marry you. Now, this was not a real uh, uncommon thing. In these days, again, because of societal situations, and if, a, if, if someone in your family died, if your, if your brother died and left a widow, the next brother, it was his family responsibility to welcome her into his family, and you can see that happens in, in the Old Testament. You'll see that over and over. And this was called a kinsman redeemer. Somebody that was family that would buy you back because now you've, you've, you're, you're gone, you've, you've lost, you're a widow. They would buy you back into the family. They would make you a part of the family, and they would provide for you. And Naomi says, maybe Boaz, maybe this is our ticket, maybe Boaz will be your kinsman redeemer. Look at chapter 3, if you will, skipping down. Chapter 3, verse number 3. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. So Naomi comes up with an idea, wash thyself therefore, go get, go get clean, get showered up, and anoint thee, put thy raiment upon thee, get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking, and it shall be when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in, and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Basically, go let him know that you're willing to marry him, and he'll let you know if he's willing to marry you, if he's willing to take you into his family. Verse number eight. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman laid his feet. That'd be kind of scary. You went to bed and there was no lady at your foot, foot, feet, and you woke up and there's somebody laying at your You'd be scared too, right? And he wakes up and he's startled. Verse 9, he says, who art thou? What are you doing here? 
Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Basically, would you welcome me in because you're a close relative through Elimelech's side? Verse number 11. And now, my daughter, he says, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. So, legally, there was a relative closer that, who had the first right of refusal, if you will. If he wanted to have Ruth as his wife, if he wanted to welcome her in and be responsible for her. He said, I'm willing to do this, but there's somebody else legally that gets the first shot. And so let me go talk to them. So skip down to chapter 4. Thank you for following along. We're getting where we're going. Chapter 4, verse number 1. Then went Boaz up to the gate. The gate was the political seat of the city. It's where all the business was done. People entered and exited, and they, they would make decisions. He goes up to the gate where all the legal matters were handled. He sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Verse 2, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. So he sits down with ten men, says, We've got a legal matter. Hey, and he's waiting for this guy. This guy comes by, Hey, I got, I got something I got to talk to you about. Hey, you ten, I need you to sit down. You're going to be the witnesses of this. And he sits down and basically says, Naomi has a field she can't care for. There's a property that you can buy. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I'll buy it. And he said, but the only thing is, if you buy it, it comes along with a new wife. Comes along with Ruth and you've got to take care of her. And the man says, no, I'm not in the the market for a wife right now. That's all right. You can have her. And and so um, skip, if you will, to verse number five. Look down at verse number five. He says, the day you buy the field, you must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess. Notice the the identity. You must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Verse 6, and the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. I don't have it in the budget right now. Verse 11, and all the people that were in the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is coming to thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. What, a, what a, an amazing verse. And I'm not going to have time to unpack that right now. But this Moabitish widow that is gleaning in the fields after he buys her back, they say, what if we're praying she has an amazing future that she would be used like Rachel and Leah in the redemption plan of the Messiah to come through Israel. Verse number uh, 12, and let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife, and when he went in unto her, notice this, the Lord gave her conception, she bare a son, and the women said unto Naomi, blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And then, last verse we'll look at right now, verse 17, and the women, her neighbor, neighbors gave it a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name, what church? They called his name Obed. He is the father of who? Jesse, the father of who? That is not an insignificant verse. The father of Obed, this Moabitish woman, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Who is David? David is one of the most significant, important, revered, and respected characters in Israel's history. 
King David is the one that's often called the son of David. You look in, in Israel, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. You have Moses, and you have David. Those are pretty much the top five. And God said, I'm going to bring this, this widowed damsel, this foreigner, this outcast into my redemption plan. And the phrase that I could not get away from in, in all of this, the phrase I couldn't get away from was in verse number five, chapter number four, in the middle of it, where it says, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. You see, because I knew the whole story, and I knew the end of the story. And by the way, Ruth, is she's mentioned many times as Ruth the Moabitess before her redemption. But after her redemption, you don't see Ruth the Moabitess. What you see is Ruth, the great-grandma of David. What you see is Ruth, the one in the lineage of Jesus. She's not only stuck in the Old Testament stories, the very first chapter of the New Testament in Matthew chapter number one as God tells us who he used to bring Christ into this world. Look at these words, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see the important names there, Jesus Christ, David, Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And we see all these hall of fame names here. And Judas begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharez begat Asram, and Asram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason and Nason begat Salmon, and here it is, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab, which is Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of who church? Ruth. In the lineage of Jesus, in the first chapter of the New Testament, as we were given maybe 20 names, all of the Old Testament history is boiled down to about 20 names. And what do we find? We find Ruth. It's not Ruth, the Moabitess wife of the dead. Oh no, it's Ruth, the redeemed one, the one that received undeserved love and undeserved grace and undeserved mercy and was given a new future. Ruth with a whole new identity in the lineage of Jesus Christ. What a difference her kinsman redeemer made in her life, in her identity, in her purpose, in her future. And by the way, Boaz, who brought Ruth in, he knew something about an outcast of society, a person with a really bad identity, being given a whole new identity, because his mom was Rahab the harlot. And there she is in the lineage of Christ. His mom was Rahab the prostitute, but after she showed faith in, 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 in God, faith in his plan, her identity was completely changed. Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, versus Ruth the great-grandmother of David. What a change. Ruth the one with no one to love her, to Ruth the beloved. Ruth the one with no future, to Ruth the one in the lineage of Christ. The book of Ruth is a story, a beautiful story of redemption and a story of how redemption or salvation changes our identity, which should change everything about us. I want us to see a few thoughts and, and then we'll be on our way. I want us to see what, what was Ruth's identity before redemption? Number one, she was defined by where she was from. She was defined by where she was from. Do you see it? All throughout Ruth, but in verse number five, chapter four, Ruth the what? Moabitess. She was defined by where she was from. Her family of origin. She was defined by the sin of her relatives. When people heard Moab, what did they think of? The sin of Lot and his daughters. 
She was defined by where she was from, by the sin of her relatives. She was defined by her ethnicity over and over again. She's defined and associated with Moab. That's nowhere to be found after her redemption. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we define ourselves, for better or for worse, from where we're from? Well, I can't do this because I was born into this kind of a home. Well, I'm just this kind of a dad or this kind of a husband because my dad did this or my mom did that. Or, uh, and we define ourselves from where we're from, for better or for worse. We define ourselves by our college or our company or our family or our ethnicity. You are not defined by where you're from or the choices your family has made. Your parents' good choices don't guarantee you a life of blessing, and their bad choices don't doom you to a life of defeat. Be careful about identifying yourself by where you're from. I'm not saying you reject and hate your lineage. I'm not saying you hate your family, but be careful. After redemption, it's not Ruth the Moabitess, it's Ruth the servant of God. Be careful about identifying yourself from, by where you're from. Who are you? And are you defined by where you're from? Secondly, I see she was defined by what she had, which for her was nothing. She was broke. Over and over again in this, it's, she's called a damsel. She's a widow. She's, she's, a, she's a scrounge, kind of just scrounging up leftover corn. She was defined by what she had when Boaz asked, who is that? That's that broke widow that's hanging out with Naomi. She was a damsel picking up the leftovers in the dirt. She's described that way, basically a poor lady with no future. She was defined by what she had. And again, we do this for better or for worse. By the way, if you've been blessed with a lot of stuff, if you're not careful, you also define yourself by the stuff you have. And if you don't have a whole lot of stuff, you're not defined by your lack. And in God's sight, if you have a whole lot of stuff, you're not defined by your abundance. We're not defined by what we have. We shouldn't be, I should say. We often are, but we shouldn't be. Number three, she was defined by what had happened to her. Ruth, verse five, the Moabitess. What is the next phrase? What a, what a kind of a tough description of her. Ruth, the, Wo the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. The wife of the dead. What was she defined by? The heartaches of her life the lowest point of her life, the tragedy of her life. She was childless in a society where that was a major social stigma. She was husbandless in a society where women generally could not provide for themselves. She was a stranger in a strange land where she was not accepted and she didn't fit in, where people knew she was a different ethnicity, all because her husband had died. That's why she was all of those things. She had not chosen to be childless. God had allowed that in her life. She had not chosen for her husband to die. She had not chosen uh, all of those things. She was defined by her others. She was defined by what had happened to her. And I want you to look at that list. And isn't that often where we find our identity? Where we're from, what we have or don't have, and what has happened to us. And because of those things, we think either God can't love us because we don't have anything to offer him, or we think we don't need God because he doesn't have anything to offer us. And we're both on wrong, both, we're wrong on both counts. And then I want you to see what was her identity after redemption. 
After she experienced unmerited love and undeserved grace, Boaz, a picture, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. Christ is our kinsman redeemer in the New Testament. Uh, what, is the, what is her identity after her redemption, after she receives love she didn't deserve from a man that, that, that had far more, that didn't need to be associating with her? What a beautiful picture of Christ. What was her identity after that? Number one, she was defined by who loved her. She was defined by who loved her. Look at verse number 13, the beginning of it. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. She is now defined, Boaz, a very respected man, a very powerful man. She is now defined by who loves her. And it's a spiritual picture. You and I are not defined by what we have or don't have, by what has or hasn't happened to us. We ought to be defined by the one who loves us. The one who's shown us unmerited grace and unmerited favor. The one that has adopted us into his family when we had no right to come in. The one that willingly opened his home and his heart to us. She was defined, secondly, by God's gift to her. Second half of verse 13, and the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. The Lord gave her. You, you and I are not defined by what we have earned or what we have accomplished. All of our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. You are defined by the gift of God, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not defined by any of those things, and, I, and we are sometimes, but in God's sight, we ought not be, and in our own lives we ought not be, because if we are, it will change our behavior completely. She was defined by God's gift to her, and then thirdly, she was defined by God's plan for her. God wanted her to raise a boy who would become David's grandpa. God wanted to use her to be a small part in God's big redemption plan for the world. And by the way, God wants the same for you and for me. God wants to give us some things that we don't deserve, and then he wants us to use those things, be faithful over them, to use them for his, to be a maybe small part of his big redemption plan for the world. Ruth, the Moabitess, wife of the dead. To Ruth, in Matthew 1, the lineage of Christ. What a future plan God had for her that she had no idea as she followed him. He changed her identity. We think because of where we're from or because of what we have or don't have, because what has happened to us through no fault of our own, that God doesn't have a plan for us. He does. Let him use you. And by the way, what changed Ruth's identity? Yes, it was the grace and mercy and love of Boaz, but I also want you to see the last verse we'll look at here, chapter 3, verse number 12. What changed her identity? I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse number 12, chapter 2, verse number 12. Let's read it aloud together. Chapter Chapter 2, verse 12. Ready? Begin. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. What changed her identity? It was faith and trust in the God of heaven. A Gentile woman who had no right, socially speaking, to be worshiping the God of Israel, who had no right for, to that, she did not deserve that based on her upbringing, based on her birth, based on what had happened to her, but because she placed her faith and trust in the God of Israel, Boaz says to her, God has a wonderful life for you, God has a wonderful plan for you, God has a wonderful way that he wants to use you as a part of his redemption plan, that is why 
why you've been redeemed. You haven't been redeemed just to enjoy the love of Boaz, although you will. You've been given some earthly pleasures. You've not been redeemed just to enjoy the life of a little son. You've been redeemed to raise up a child that will help bring forth the Messiah. I've changed your purpose, and I've changed your identity. Who are you? Well, I'm just an engineer just kind of trying to amass as many toys as I can and trying to make a good life and give my kids a better life than I had and have some fun and don't really know. Who are you? What's your identity? Are you the stuff you have? Are you where you're from? Are you what's happened to you? Or are you who you've been loved by? Are you the gift of grace you've been given? Are you the plan he has for you? in his redemption plan. We had a Q&A section uh, in our chapel. We had a two-week secondary chapel Q&A, let all of our high school, junior high and high school students ask any questions that they wanted. And we had a panel of of our principal and our youth pastor and uh, one of our assistant pastors and another assistant pastor and me. And we were going through all of the questions, and one of the questions was something along the lines of, you know, uh, what what do you think? Something about, I'm I'm raised by a single parent. What, What what should I, something like, how can God use me or something? I forget the exact question, but it was something like, what should I do based on what has happened to me being raised by a single parent? And we were going through all these questions the day before on Tuesday, questions, doctrinal questions, cultural questions, different things. And we came to that one. And I looked around the table as we were all going around these answers with our principal and and our youth pastor and two other assistant pastors and me. It was Sammy, Jay, Ryan, Kevin, me. And I looked around, I said, well, If you've been raised in a single-parent home, I guess what you do is you join the staff here. That's what you do. Because everybody around that table was raised by a single mom. And I looked and I just thought, what a beautiful picture. And I'm glad that my wife wasn't raised by a single mom. And my wife is serving God and was raised by two parents that have been married for more than 50 years and have been faithful to each other. And God has a different plan. But sometimes, isn't it true that we start to identify ourselves based on the stuff that's happened to us? Well, God can't use me because of this. God can use any of us in spite of us, no matter what we've seen, where we've been, and what we've done, and what we have or don't have. God can use us. Who are you? Where are you finding your identity? Where you find your identity will change everything about your priorities, your schedule, what you're living for, your expenses, your budget, all of the things that you do. It'll change how you bring up your kids. It'll change what you do at work, how you interact with coworkers. Why? Because either I I am in this thing for myself, or God put me in this business to be a small part in his big big redemption plan, and that changes everything when I change the way that I see myself as one of God's children. Well, I'm a pastor, I'm a business person during the week, and I'm a Christian on Sunday. Well, I have to separate those things. I I make money during the week, and I give God my weekend. I, I can either be, I know growing up sometimes I got the idea that you could either serve God full time or you could be, uh, be not in ministry. We would call it full time ministry and you'll rarely hear me talk about going into full time ministry. Why? Because I believe that, or full time Christian service, and I'm not against those phrases, I know what they mean by them, but you'll hear me say almost always vocational ministry meaning I get a paycheck from a church. But here's the reality, folks, all of us are in full-time Christian service. 
We are all full-time Christians, and because I get a paycheck from the church doesn't mean I'm a bigger part of God's redemption plan for the world than the business owner and the doctor and the nurse and the soldier and, and, and the, the stay-at-home mom doesn't change our identity. Well, I'm either giving God my life or, or I get to keep my life and give God my Sundays. No, it's not business or ministry, it's business as ministry. Business as, I was counseling with a young uh, business owner this week, we were, I was talking this Wednesday, and we were going, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, because I preached chapel on Wednesday, two weeks ago, and I said, I said, it's business as ministry. Your life is not compartmentalized. God put you in that arena to be a full-time gospel witness, a light, and part of His redemption plan. How we view ourselves, our identity changes everything. Could I get Pastor Doug, are you in here? Somebody wake up Pastor Doug, please. Pastor Doug, if you'll come on up. <laughs> Keith, if you'll join me here on the platform. I think most of you know Pastor Doug, most, most of you know Keith and Gloria Gilbert. Keith, what year did you get saved here at Liberty? 1999. 1999, so 24 years ago. Doug, what year did you and Joanne move here to serve at Liberty? 2001, so two years later. They've both been here more than 20 years. Doug, what's your job? What's your, what's your, how do, what do, you, what do you do? How do we identify? What's your identity? What's your job, your vocation? I'm the outreach pastor. Assistant pastor here at Liberty. Keith, what do you do? Uh, construction scheduler. Construction scheduler. How long have you run your own business? Uh, 37 years. 37 years. He's, uh, he's helping with that big restoration hardware there at, at, uh, at Fashion Island and Downtown Disney and all these big projects. He's been a part of a lot of those things. So we have a construction scheduler and we have an assistant pastor. One is a vocational pastor and the other is a businessman. So one is more important to the work of God, right? Oh no. He's a full-time pastor. He's a full-time Christian businessman. And guess what? In 20-plus years, you know what Keith has done? He's used his skills and his gifts and his talents, his understanding that God has blessed him with. He's done to throw himself into the work of the ministry in every way that he can. And he's used those resources to invest in the, in the work here and to send uh, I don't know his giving records, but I know who they are, and I've been with them on missions trips. I know their generous heart, Keith and Gloria. I, I know I can say at least tens of thousands, if it's not more than that, to missions works around the world. And he's used his ability for that thinking of projects to help with construction projects in the Lord's work and, and with the relaunch of NCS and a business mind to know what are the right decisions to make here when our school was about to close a decade ago. And, and every, son, uh, every time we have a deacon's meeting, he's there and keeping and making sure we're doing everything correctly and, 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 doing, and giving us good advice and, and, and doing those things. He was the, uh, the director of our capital campaign that allowed us, and we're still raising for uh, one final project with the community center and a lobby remodel, uh, but helped us to raise millions of dollars through his leadership, his, his organization, his ability to schedule things, these things that God had given him. And he, I don't believe, Keith, you view it that I'm a business person during the week and a Christian on the weekend. Uh, this is, God put me in this place, and I'm going to use those resources. This who I am is God saved me, and this is the gifts he gave me, and I'm going to use it for the furtherance of his kingdom. Just because Doug gets a paycheck from Liberty doesn't make him any more valuable to the work of God. In fact, some ways, I wouldn't have a job if we didn't have any of these, right? So he might be more valuable because me and Doug aren't here if it aren't for folks that are helping to pay our paychecks. I'll let you guys be seated. Why do I use that illustration? Because sometimes we get it wrong. I can either go into business or I can go into ministry. 
And by the way, we need more vocational ministers. We need more young men and young women saying, I'll give my life to serve God vocationally. There are churches dying for pastors, and, and we have our colleges, Doc, you worked in Christian education. Our colleges are having less and less across the country training for ministry. We need some young people to say, but by the way, we need Christian politicians, and we need Christian educators, and we need Christian in, Christians in healthcare, and Christian business people, and Christian lawyers. Understand what is your identity? Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. Our identity changes everything. Are you a child of the king this morning? Do you know for sure if you were to die that you'd go to heaven? Do you see yourself as God sees you, or are you sitting there saying, God can't use me because of what I have or don't have, because of where I'm from, because of what's been done to me, or maybe because of something I've done? When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We've been adopted, we've been accepted, we've been engrafted, like the police officer or the firefighter or the EMT, whether on duty or off duty, if someone is in need, it is part of their DNA to spring into action to help. And as believers, when we see ourselves as believers all placed in different arenas, but we're all full-time Christian servants, God, how do I use your gifts as a part of your redemption? Because I'm not a business owner, I'm a Christian business owner. And I'm not a, I'm not a, whatever, God, I'm a part, I'm identified by you. You are the love you've given me, the gift you've given me, the future you've given me. Today we have a lot of identity theft. Anybody here, you've been a victim of identity theft? Few of you, well, more than a few, many of you. It's no, no fun, is it? Depending on, especially depending on how I had one, um, I was going on, I got a phone call from a check cashing place late last year. They said, did you write this check to so-and-so? They tried to come in here and cash it. I said, no, I had ordered new checks and they had stolen them out of the mailbox. And for a few weeks, they were trying to write checks all over the place from me. And thankfully, I'd put a stop on all of the numbers because the very first one they wrote, the check cashing place called me. We have identity theft. Christ is not in the identity theft business, but he is in the identity replacement business. What did he do to Ruth? He gives us a new name. He gives us, we're no longer Ruth the Moabitess, we're Ruth the great granddaddy of David. He gives us a new future, a new purpose, a bright hope. He gives us eternal life, and, and then he gives us earthly blessings we don't deserve along the way. Who are you? What lies have you been believing, and it's been affecting your behaviors? Who are you? You know what Ruth would say? Ruth would say, I'm not a widow anymore, I'm redeemed. I'm not grieving, I'm joyful. I'm not lonely, I'm fully loved. I'm not poor, I'm rich beyond measure. You know what Ruth would say? I'm not perfect, but I've been given undeserved grace, and I'm not impressive, but my God sure is. She would say, I'm not searching, I've been found. I'm not a stranger, I'm accepted and adopted into a new family. I'm not Ruth the Moabitess, I'm Ruth the relative of Jesus. I'm not worthy, she would say, but he is. And by the way, her identity changed because of a human kinsman redeemer. How much more can you and I say all of those things because we've been given the only beloved begotten son of God to become our kinsman redeemer, and you ought not be lonely, you ought to know that you're fully loved, and you ought not feel that you have nothing to offer. You're not, you're not Ruth the Moabitess, you're a relative of Jesus. You're not what has happened to you or what has been done to you or where you've been. You, you're not what, what, has happened, what, what has happened to you. You are what happened for you on the cross of Calvary. Who are you? You're a child of the King. Let's live like it. Christians, let's live like it. Our lives, they, they matter. He loves us. 
He knows us. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may uh, be able to find mercy, obtain help in our time of need. We don't have to wander through this life uh, lost and aimless and confused. He's given us His love and He's given us His Word. I'm not saying the life of the Christian isn't without doubt or confusion or frustration or tears at times. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying those are temporary parts of our life. They are not our defining identities. So who are you? It should change everything, how we live, what we live for, the joy that we have, the purpose that we give ourselves to. You're more than where you were from. You're who loves you. You're more than what you have. You're what he has given you. You're more than what's happened to you. You're what happened for you on the cross of Calvary. If you're saved this morning, are you walking in your identity in Christ? And if you're not saved today, by the way, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be terrible if after Boaz welcomed Ruth in, she still wandered around like a social outcast widow picking up corn from her husband's fields? Wouldn't that be terrible? She had a whole new future and a whole new life because of the love she'd received. Now live like it. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, you've never had him change your identity, you've never passed from death unto life, you've never had your sins forgiven, Christ doesn't just want to help you clean up your act, he wants to transform your entire life. He wants you to pass from death unto life. He doesn't just want to give you a little bit better life with a little bit of some self-help answers. He wants to give you an entirely new purpose and eternal destiny. Would you accept the love of your kinsman redeemer? Would you let him welcome you into his family today? Who are you? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.